0: they're buying into you. So you're the service. So if your consultants or your team doesn't reflect that, you're not gonna win that next contract. Whereas you can have an amazing product and maybe not as talented of a team, but that product stands on its own.
1: Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Miranda McKay, founder and CEO of McKay Consultants. McKay Consultants is a strategic consulting firm that specializes in diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, HR analytics, and inclusive product design. Miranda is passionate about advancing women and women of color in the workplace. She has worked on various initiatives focused on utilizing artificial intelligence capabilities to gain insights on systemic barriers that impact marginalized groups. Her work has led her to be the 2020 recipient of Catalyst Canada's Emerging Leader Award. She believes in giving back to the community, currently lectures at Canadian universities teaching people analytics, and previously sat on the Toronto Board of Trade's Young People's Committee. Miranda has led various internal grassroots committees at previous organizations and was also the co founder and president of a nonprofit. Young Women in Business Toronto, which provides over a thousand Toronto women with a strong and sustainable network of support to enable their professional development. That's a mouthful. Welcome to the show, Miranda. Ah, glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, what would you say is the biggest problem that you're solving for your clients? Yeah,
0: great question. Uh, so, we work primarily in the diversity, equity, and inclusion and in HR. Uh, strategy and analytics space. Right. And uh, when we engage with our clients, it's funny because some of the, you know, they'll come to us and the challenges are usually around culture or they're looking to, you know, better engage employees, or maybe they're looking to recruit diverse people. Um, But what I find sometimes our clients even miss is really how kind of HR and DEI can help to support some of their strategic priorities. So they'll often engage us first on some of these very kind of tactical use cases. And then often it turns into a much larger strategic piece where it's how can our HR strategies, how can our analytics strategies towards HR and DEI help to improve some of those broader organizational goals like revenue growth, uh, like customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's kind of where we operate in is really helping uh, organizations leverage those uh, HR and DEI capabilities to drive some of the strategic priorities that they have. Got it.
1: So you founded the company three years ago. Um, tell me a little bit about what the impetus was behind this. I mean, you'd been, you know, you'd had a few other, you know, several other jobs before that doing, you know, some different, different things for different companies. And I'm curious as to what had you say, yeah, you know, this is something that's needed and I'm going to do this. Yeah, uh, good question. So it was something I've
0: always wanted to do. Honestly, I always saw myself as much more of an entrepreneur mm-hmm. than, you know, working for a large organization. And I've always, you know, throughout earlier in my career, I did primarily just work for large organizations, yeah. which was fantastic. Learned so much. Um, I don't think I would have been able to start this organization much earlier than I did because I needed that kind of domain knowledge Mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing what other organizations do to start my own. Um, But what really kind of led me into it was, you know, timing. I had felt that I had the experience to kind of go out on my own. Um, And I also noticed a, a gap in the market. Um, at the time I left was right in 2020, so the heart of COVID. And I found a lot of the HR um, and as well, the diversity, equity and inclusion strategies, even the ones that I would consult in, I worked in management consulting prior, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. were much more based on gut feel as opposed to using evidence-based decisions and analytics and data and working at a large consulting firm and seeing that, that was shocking to me. So I was like, oh, "There's definitely an opportunity here to kind of differentiate and uh, offer, you know, a different type of service line that can kind of speak to more evidence-based pieces around the HR and DEI space."
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and and you've grown the company to five people in the last three years, so you're still you're still fairly lean. How did you, how did you start to grow? I mean, you said, okay, I'm going to do this. And then how did you start hiring? Where did you get your money to do so? What did that look like for you? Oh, great question. So, uh, I should have mentioned I'm based out of, um,
0: Canada right, and, uh, right. yeah, Toronto and, uh, you know, we're a services company, right. which are never funded.
1: Right. Um, I'm well aware. Yeah,
0: Yeah. exactly. Right. You have to fully bootstrap yourself. Right. So essentially that's what I did the first, you know, primarily the first year was primarily me um, consulting on engagements, really kind of figuring out my product market fit or my service market fit, Um, working with, you know, trying to build partnership relationships to grow that business that way. And then once I was able to kind of get that roster of clients coming in, I was able to hire. I must admit, it wasn't easy. Uh, it's very difficult to run a business and then also do all of the work to for yep. that business. And uh, it's an unfortunate space. you know. I know that uh, with services, because they don't have the unicorn potential, they're typically mm-hmm. not going to be right. funded or invested in. Yep. Um, But here we are, and we were able to kind of get to where we are today, and we're continuously growing now that we kind of have figured out our business model and planning and how we Mm -hmm. would grow year over year. So I see this team kind of doubling in size next year.
1: Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Miranda, how did you initially, you know, in that first year or so that you were on your own, um, how did you find your prospects? Oh yes! Did you go back to your you know big the clients that you know you had when you were at you know that large consulting firm?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, not because of um, uh, no uh, non-solicitation non-compete. and non-compete. Yeah, uh, but a lot yeah. of it though was relationship-based. Yeah. I was able to sure. leverage. I, I was luckily very involved when I was in management consulting. I spoke a lot of mm-hmm. different events. And I was able to kind of create a little bit of a brand for myself around the diversity, equity, mm-hmm. and inclusion and analytics space. And yeah. uh, I was able to leverage that. I'd won some awards. Um, I was kind of very actively networking prior to leaving um, uh, my the the organization I was at. And I was able to really just leverage my relationships to go out and find business. And I think I was lucky that way. I know everyone doesn't have that opportunity, but that's really how I did it. It was building on the relationships I had, always going out to people and saying, you know, if you know someone, this is the type of work that we offer. And then it was also making sure that the clients that we did have felt that the work that we were delivering was top notch, was management consulting level, so that they were coming back, and we really, really invested in our uh, current our clients that we saw continued growth with, so that we weren't just kind of looking at one-off projects, but how can we build sustained relationships over time with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious, and, and this this comes out of you know the work I do around teams and with a lot of entrepreneurs. Had you, had you or have you considered? Because, you know, to your point, and I understand this myself, um, you know, better than a lot of people, just because I've been at it for so long, is that, you know, your your point about it's hard to build a team when you have to do everything yourself, right? Had you considered or have you considered a co-founder, a partner? Yeah,
0: I did, you know, especially when I was deciding like when to leave and and all of those pieces. And it was really difficult to kind of find someone that was ready at the same time. Yeah. I found yeah. it's difficult to find someone that's willing to kind of commit as well equally. Um, so in my view, I decided, well, originally I was like, I'll start this on my own, build something for myself, mm-hmm. and, and then decide when the time is right to see if I can bring in a partner going forward that way.
1: Because yep. um, it is hard, right? When It's really hard. I mean, I've been, I've been at this for years and I have yet to find somebody who, who even has, you know, who has the chutzpah to do it. No, I need that big salary. Yes. Okay. Well, you're not really an entrepreneur and that's okay. Right. Um, I mean, there are a multitude of reasons. Oh, I've got a kid getting ready to go to college. Exactly. You know, there's, it's, it's really, really difficult. Yeah.
0: And I think it's like exactly that, right? And it's the amount of commitment I think people will see um, Your business now, and you're like, oh, like, great, you did a great job. But I think a lot of people forget how much work is in it when you're doing it. Like, you're mm-hmm. in such long nights, you know, and it's hard to find someone that's equally going to either put in that time, put in that investment in money, and then, you know, align together on the vision and all of those pieces when you're in those early stages. So that was my mm-hmm. my challenge as well.
1: Yeah. Well, and again, yeah. that's, that's not uncommon. So, um, you know, as, as when you and I first talked, we talked about, you know, the challenges with DEI right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at least in the United States. <laughs> um, is most of your business in Canada, and are you having the same challenges as we're having here with, you know, certain states basically not wanting DEI because they don't actually understand, they don't really understand it yeah or why it's necessary or that i think you know as as i have said many many times i believe in it i don't believe in it to check a box exactly right i want to see more women leaders i don't want to see them promoted just because they're a woman exactly yes and that's what i think most of the politicians are trying to get people ginned up about
0: you know exactly, and we uh, so we work with clients all over the world actually, and it's interesting because each country has different history, has different ideologies. So you see that the, you know the concept of DEI change very drastically depending on the country that you're working in. What are some of those priorities? And I find the biggest challenge I see with organizations and not buying into it is a mix between sensationalization in the media. And what, you know, we talk about sometimes in the media and what's shared where it's really it's, it's sad to see, I think, because DEI, you know, we'll talk about, you know, maybe one demographic or a lot of the conversations around DEI, at least in the media, are just around um, sexual orientation or just race and ethnicity, where there's so much more involved. And, you know, a lot of our conversations are about different points of intersectionality, what makes someone unique. So this could be everything from, are you a caregiver? Are you a junior employee or a senior employee? Are you in a head office or a satellite office? Those are all essentially areas of uh, DEI that you know that organizations need to essentially think through. And another reason why I see a lot of organizations, again, not be bought into it, it's tying back to what I was saying earlier about not aligning to strategic priorities. So when we work with a lot of our organizations, a lot of the times they'll engage us and you know, we're like, okay, why do you want to do this? And they're like, we don't know,
1: it's the right thing to do. Hey, yeah. yeah and it's like well that's not going to be that's not a good enough reason exactly yeah i'd love to take your money but <laughs> yeah exactly
0: it's like this isn't gonna work yeah,
1: yeah so well, not everybody has and not everybody really has the has the the stones to say that right Exactly. most people just oh i just want the money i don't care exactly and that's what i also see really sad in this di space
0: because uh you know people don't go into like accounting and pretend to be Mm -hmm. an accountant. You need to have specific, you know, qualifications, certifications, et cetera. Whereas DEI is such an interesting space because uh, unfortunately a lot of DEI today is based on lived experience. Yeah. So you have a lot of people that enter into the profession that personally, I don't believe, you know, they're they're pulling on their own experience, which is very valid, (laughs) but it's not, you know, uh, the broader space. So then we get these Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, New York. Like, who made that strategy, or who thought that that was a good idea of something yeah. to to implement? Um, yeah. So it's a weird space that we're in. I hope that we start to see a little bit more control around the DI landscape, similar that we see with HR and getting certified and things like that. I think mm-hmm. would help kind of control a lot of the challenges that we're seeing today.
1: Yeah, that's really fantastic. And what you're describing is, is very similar to the fact that, you know, all of a sudden everyone's a coach. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, and, oh, because, oh, well I hired some people so I could be a, you know, I can be a hiring coach. Yeah. No. Or I, I, you know, or, or I can be a, I can be a career coach because I hired some people. I know. No. And they don't have any training. They don't actually understand what coaching is. Really what they are is a consultant. Exactly. So, and they don't know the distinction between that. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't know, who don't know enough to ask those, to ask the right questions, right?
0: Yeah. And it's upsetting because then I think businesses do get taken advantage of, and then they bring in these individuals that maybe are, you know, experts in this space.
1: But are great salespeople. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then it creates this like,
0: you know, um, kind of perspective of what this field is, um, which then hurts, I think, the profession.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think that that you know is 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 it's common among a number of different professions. So that's mm-hmm. really great. Um, what would you say is, is the competitive nature of your business? I mean, you're talking about these all these other people popping up, but what does that really look like in in practice? And how and how do you distinguish yourself? Oh, good question. Among so, them. yeah, I find. <laughs> I find,
0: especially in the DEI space, a lot of the uh, individuals that will come up in the space or other businesses um, tend to be more focused on, let's um, say, emotion-driven and feelings-driven, um, how do employees feel in the workplace, which is still valid. You want to make sure that yeah, employees sure are, is. you know, have positive sentiment mm-hmm. towards the organization. And this is kind of what really drove my business, though, was around how do you leverage data to, 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 to tell that story. So, um, you know, what we would often see, uh, you know, prior to starting my organization is you'd go into organizations and they'd say, we have a problem with this demographic because maybe there's one loud voice, um, within that demographic that's, you know, uh, sharing their, their thoughts. Now, often what happens, it maybe gets raised to the leadership level, depending on who the voice is, or it maybe gets forgotten, And our view was always, you know, how do we let data tell that story? So if we're discussing things like sentiment, what does that look like across the organization? If we're discussing, you know, a DEI issue around promotions, is there actually a trending difference that we're seeing over time across Mm -hmm. different demographics? Are more people that are of a certain demographic going on performance evaluation or PIPs than people that are not of that demographic? So really kind of fact-based, again, discussions. That drive the strategy, and then mm-hmm. again aligning those facts to the strategic priorities. So, if we want to serve our customers better, are there right. sp- specific pockets that aren't serving customers better, and is it because they're unhappy? How do we now increase their engagement so that they're better employees? So that's kind of how we differentiate, I would say, as opposed mm-hmm. to just mm-hmm. coming in and being like mentorship program
1: or you know, yeah. social posts on whatever you know specific. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> -hmm. Yeah. What would you say are the biggest challenges that you're facing right now, you know, within your organization? Mm -hmm. Great question.
0: So I think the hardest part is still like, we're still really small. So, you know, the employees that we do have within the organization are consultants. And um, the challenge I find, especially in the services space, is you want to bring in people that are going to be billable. But then you also have to balance that with creating a scalable organization and establishing your operations. And that's by far our biggest challenge of uh, right. how do you kind of, you know, make sure that you're profitable, but then also continuously invest in those operational pieces so that you can scale and continue to grow. And mind you doing that with pretty much no investment coming in. Uh, so I'd say that by far <laughs> is our biggest, biggest challenge. It's really the kind mm-hmm. of scalability
1: piece. Yeah. And I think again, that's that is not uncommon among small companies. Yes. Do you feel that you have to educate your prospects on what you're doing? All the so, time. So you know when you're talking about distinguishing yourself, you know, from all the rest of the people out there who you point out, well, you know, they they they've had this experience, so then now they think they should be doing this for a living, right? Yes. So so in in that distinguishing, do you have to educate people on? you know, why it's important what you're doing and the benefits and so on.
0: Yeah. All the time. Um, (laughs) All the time. And I would say our, most of our clients are people that are not, you know, we're usually brought in maybe by someone that believes in the cause, but and you're supporting, you know, kind of initiatives that they're trying to get off the ground. But usually when they're bringing in a consultant to support this, it's because you have to now convince all the people that don't believe in this cause. That's talking to the, you know, the CFO that's like, why am right. I investing in this? The CEO who now we're talking about all of their operational changes that they need to make to support kind of some of the institutional mm-hmm. challenges that may exist. So it's constant education. Um, mm. I find now too, which is really interesting, there's a lot of uh, guilt within organizations too Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And at very what senior level
1: skill also. yeah. Yeah,
0: I think, again, it ties back to the sensationalization that we see in media where you have a lot of leaders feeling that they can't make decisions on people, um, feeling that they're not the right person to discuss, you know, challenges employees have, or maybe they're not the right people to kind of ideate around how do we support employees that have mental health challenges and things like that because they don't have that lived experience, as opposed to looking at from the perspective of, you know, you have lived experiences being a leader and working with so many people. So I find that as an interesting kind of challenge point. Uh, and a lot of it is educating it almost the other way of no, you're you're valuable, your ideas are valuable. And like to truly solve these challenges within organizations, we have to look at this collaboratively and see those diverse
1: perspectives. This, you know, as I mentioned, this is your first time leading a company. What would you say some of the mistakes you've made thus far as a leader. And what have you done to fix them? Just, you know, give me give me a couple. Oh man, so many, it's
0: like where to start. <laughs> um one is thinking that um I should be doing everything and not delegating uh delegating Very to people. Good. That's a huge one. Yep. Um really identifying kind of the tedious things that I'm doing and making sure I take that off my plate. Um, not getting too uh, kind of on that side think of thinking again, not getting too invested in, you know, day-to-day client relations all the time and making sure that I'm always focusing on the strategy and the next steps around the business, mm-hmm. which is super hard even now for me mm-hmm. to continue to do. And I always have to kind of check in with myself and make sure that maybe it's not important to join that client meeting. Um, you know, will this really drive, you know, additional revenue for the business if I join mm-hmm. this call or should I be spending my time in more strategic work? And I would also say even things like offboarding um, quickly with some and you know people that have joined, whether through contract or um, uh, employees and making sure that I had stronger processes in place to say, you know, is this person truly a fit with the culture that I'm trying to grow? And knowing that early on, as opposed to waiting and, you know, investing uh, all of that, not only uh, financials um, and money, but time into individuals that potentially didn't have a you know, career within the organization.
1: So, what do you think has been has been the issue around when you've brought people in and they just really haven't worked out? Is that you know your an experience at going through this process?
0: Yeah, I think I think consulting is so challenging because it's it's a really hard piece. No project's ever the same. Um, you know, I don't have the recruitment power to recruit you know, who we would get in the big four um, right. and bring those into the, to the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of time that needs to be spent building very strong, robust onboarding processes, yeah. which is, you know, yeah. I have five people, how, yeah. how would Tets is my onboarding process truly going to be. So I think those mm-hmm. are some of really those, those challenges there. Um, mm-hmm. And what I've learned is that, you know, that's really important. Investing with people earlier on, shadowing them, really having that, very, very close, Um, you know, piece where they're shadowing me on projects, how Mm -hmm. everything from presenting to deliverables... Um, especially when you don't have a series of you know thousands of clients we've worked with, where you can say go find something similar and build it like this, right? Uh, so I think just consulting in nature is very difficult because you're looking for someone that can not only like think very strategically, but also be you know technically technical in nature, data driven, present. Uh, so you're looking sometimes for that unicorn. So I do find it hard to yeah. recruit for those those individuals.
1: Yeah, it's very but- difficult, and and I do want to you know, mentioned just because of what I did for almost three decades before moving into consulting myself is that, you know, selling services and selling products are two distinctly different things. Exactly. And back when I was a professional headhunter, you know, I didn't, I didn't take on many, uh, many, many, where I was putting people into professional services, um, Mm -hmm. types of roles, but they were more challenging. I have to say, because you can't take somebody you really it's really hard to take somebody who's been selling a product and moving them into services services i think in many ways and hopefully i won't get hate mail from all the product people (laughs) out there um services can be extremely far more challenging much more complicated
0: exactly and i think it's because too they're buying into you Right. So that's you're right. the service. So if, if your consultants that's or your team doesn't reflect that, you're not going to win that right. next contract. Whereas you mm-hmm. can have an amazing product and maybe not as, you know, talented of a team, but that product
1: stands on its own. So I agree. Yep. I, I do think that's extremely challenging. And and as a leader, you know, as you as you said, you know, I have to, you know, where where I can delegate things out rather than being involved. That's really hard because you know exactly how you want your business to run and what should be done, and it, and that's always been my challenge, right? Gosh, you know, people are buying me, so. Exactly, oh man. You know, I can yeah. tell, you, tell you horror stories of clients. Yeah, I hired this firm, the Rainmaker came in and sold this to me, and then they put people on the project that really let us down.
0: Exactly. And clients that know that's happening, right? So they're very much like, well, we want to make sure you're on the project and that we're seeing hours coming in from you or that you're on all of the meetings. And I found that really difficult, especially in the first part of the transition when I brought on the team, because clients were used to just seeing me do everything. And now it's, here's someone else. You need to you know, kind of foster them to have a good relationship with that client. They need to build Mm -hmm. that trust. Uh, So I found that very difficult. And I actually still find that difficult where a lot Mm -hmm. of clients still see me of the face of it. They'll come to me for scheduling meetings and it's like, no, go to my, (laughs) you know, my team member is going to help with that. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you, when you, when you're selling projects, do, you know, are you bringing in the, is the consultant that's going to be working on it with you? Yes. So that is one learning I've always had
0: now as well is um, when I'm going through the sales process, I bring the team on it. And from the start level set with the client of what my role on the project would be versus uh, everyone else on the, on the project. And that usually just kind of completely changes the
1: engagement. Of course it does. It, and a lot of people don't realize that. That's why I asked the question. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So who would you say is your ideal client, Miranda? and what makes them ideal? Yeah. So I love data.
0: So clients with a lot of it. That is, you know, my <laughs> ideal client, I would say. Uh-huh. Um, we, we've been fortunate to work across a lot of industries, everything from mm-hmm. mining to consumer goods, to financial right. institutions, big to small organizations across the space. Um, but we do really like to work with clients that have challenges too, that are really like difficult, right? Where we can come in, we can leverage data and we can start to build those solutions. Um, I really also like working with clients that you know, everyone wants to work with clients that see the vision, but that do believe in DEI as a driver to their strategic priorities. We actually tend mm-hmm. to actually turn down work uh, for clients that do see it as just more of a tick the box initiative yeah, uh, because it's not sustainable and it just yes. honestly
1: ruins morale of our team. And yep. then I have churn risk or retention risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really fantastic. Um, and, and, how to now, I mean, I know you said, you know, in the first year what you were doing, but you know, two years later, um, or three years later, do, how are you connecting with your prospects? Are you doing, is it all outbound marketing? Is it referrals, a combination? Where are you finding people?
0: Yeah. Great question. So it's a bit of both. Um, I still rely heavily on referrals and Mm -hmm. I work a lot with, um, I've started now doing a little bit more outbound marketing, which has been interesting. I I still struggle with it because I do not find it as authentic, honestly. Um, You know, of doing some of those like cold outreaches and some of those pieces. Um, It's just not really who I am as a person. So I struggle with kind of conveying that even though I know it's successful because it has been successful. Well,
1: fine, fine. you have to find the right person, the right company who knows how to really do it. Because there's a lot of, there's like any industry, there's a lot of people out there who are no good at all. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's
0: been interesting learning for me as well, because especially starting this business, my background's in data, data engineering, data architecture, and then of course, diversity, equity, inclusion, and that mix between people analytics. It's not in marketing. So, you know, I never thought I'd be spending so much time trying to learn this field as well, um, to build up this capability within the organization mm-hmm. to then make mm-hmm. sure I'm hiring the right person to take it over. Uh, so it has been a lot of that and a lot of learning. So, you know, from working with firms that maybe didn't work out, um, to then trying to find something else that some other organizations that did. Um, so it's been a little bit of trial and error until we kind of figure out that,
1: that capability. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, what would you say are your biggest opportunities and threats right now in your space? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, good question. I would say some of the biggest, maybe if I start with threats, I think right now it's the market. Um, I mean, we've already seen a ton of layoffs, especially within the HR and DEI space, um, which mm-hmm. is really unfortunate. I, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of that is primarily, again, because of how these strategies were established, where they're not tied to the strategic objectives, they weren't sustainable strategies, and then organizations didn't see ROI. So it makes sense that you let go of people that you're not seeing the ROI from. But then on the flip side, I almost see that as the opportunity uh, where it pres- positions us in an interesting um, point where we can show ROI and we can show the opportunity that exists within the field. And I find when we have those conversations with the clients, they're much more interested in engaging um, as opposed to, again, tick the box initiatives or more, mm-hmm. you know initiatives that just aren't going to, to to really go anywhere.
1: Yeah. What would you say you are the most proud of when it comes to your organization so far? Oh, that's a great question.
0: Um, honestly, I, I would say right now, the team. I love our team. I think they've been so amazing uh, throughout this entire journey. I find I get so much support from them. Um, I learn so much from them throughout the process. Uh, we're, I don't like using the words like we're like a family because we're not we're not family, but <laughs> right. they're really, really amazing uh, mm-hmm. people to work with with. And, um, yeah, and I'd say like having that team and being able to kind of get to a point, even though we're small, but having a small team is something that I would say I'm probably most proud of. Yeah. How do you describe your culture? Great question. So we're remote, uh, we're fully remote. And what we do is, uh, we try to engage at least. So although remote, all of our employees are located within Toronto. Uh, so we do still meet in person and we do monthly, like, strategy mm-hmm. days and things like Good. that. Um, but that has been a challenge of the remote workforce. We will continue to stay remote because I believe in, you know, flexibility and, and all of those pieces, but it is very difficult to establish a remote culture where people feel that, um, you know, uh, either you you can go talk to someone at the route and grab a coffee very easily with them. And it doesn't always have to be these scheduled <laughs> client conversations or right. very you know, business-heavy things. We've tried to implement things of doing, which we took from product, uh, of implementing things like daily stand-ups. Um, we do, like, games and things like that, mm-hmm. town halls to try and maintain that that piece. Yeah. And we also do our, like, monthly activities where we just do something fun, no work-related yeah. activities, mm-hmm. which is also really nice because we're so small so that we can mm-hmm. still do that. We went to, like, Cirque du Soleil. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, and stuff like that. Um, But it is an ever growing thing. And I think a lot of organizations are still struggling with how do you create a very powerful culture that you would once have in the, um, you know, like in an in-person scenario from before.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no question, right? I mean, this is, I think, you know, I mean, we could, we, this could sidetrack our entire conversation, so I don't want it to do that. But I mean, the whole conversation about, you know, work from home versus work from office is complicated. It's really just yeah. not easy enough to say, I mean, it, you know, I, I've had, I've, I know plenty of founders I've in, interviewed that started their companies before COVID and they were hundred percent remote. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I guess maybe all the years that I've, you know, been in sales, right? <laughs> my, my response to many things is, well, it depends. Well, right. Sure. I mean, you know, can it work for you given all these factors? Exactly, and what do you need to do to make it work? And I think you're doing a lot of a lot of things that are probably very effective. You know, like you said, getting together once a month to do something fun. You know, having a strategy session once a month, and you can afford to do that because you do have everybody geographically. You may all be work from home, but you're all in Toronto. Yes, <laughs> right. Which then changes when you start hiring somebody in Quebec or you know anywhere else or in the United States, yeah. right? Where, where that's not the case anymore. And then you have to start looking at, okay, now what does my strategy have to be?
0: Exactly. I completely agree. And it's so like employees want it. They want to feel like, even though they want the flexibility of working from home, but yep. they also want to feel like they're part of a team. And it is it is really hard to, to facilitate that. And um make that happen. And especially even one thing I've noticed too, even working with clients, I find it's much easier to work remotely when you're working with a lot more experienced hires. So mm-hmm. um, our team yes. is a team of experienced hires. People aren't right out of school. A lot of them have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an easier environment. But when you have a junior employee that needs more of that face-to-face yeah. And, you know, they're not going to be comfortable to book a call with you. That also creates a different culture and dynamic that you have to address so that you can bring them up to that level. And I think a lot of organizations are also struggling with that. Um, mm-hmm. So it is, it's challenging. It again, goes back to diversity, right? As you bring in more diverse people, different geographical locations, yeah. different interests, all of that, how do you then manage that culture remotely?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. Um... So you mentioned that you're looking to double uh, the number of employees you have here in the next year. What's driving that right now? So a bit of it, well, one is
0: just general growth. We've we've done well this year. So we're in a situation where we can continue to grow um, as well as, as I was kind of tying into a little bit around um, building us, uh, sca- being able to properly scale and doing that strategically. Um, so we want to make sure that we're bringing in, um, you know, more like those operational roles so that when we're bringing in more clients and more service lines that we're able to support that. And then Mm -hmm. I would say the last piece is diversifying our service lines. So we primarily operate in the HR, DEI, we do inclusive product design, but as we continue to grow and expand and have that resiliency within the market, it's important that we are diversifying our service lines and bringing in different talent that will be able to offer uh, kind of increase their offerings or our organization's offerings.
1: And Miranda, are you calling directly into human resources? Into human resources? Yeah. is Is that your prospect?
0: Yes, primarily human resources professionals or DEI professionals, but we tend to get engaged by human resources professionals.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you have any trouble getting in to see them? Are you and are you reaching out to that top HR person, the CHRO or whatever, chief people officer, whatever they call it? Yeah, it's interesting. I find
0: HR is such an interesting space because they're so friendly. Really? Yeah, I find, well, at least we've been lucky with the HR (laughs) professionals we've worked with that they're very Mm -hmm. friendly and they like to, um, what we've noticed, friendly, usually like to share ideas, often open just even for a coffee chat. Mm -hmm. Um, So I find that absolutely fantastic about the field. But then when it becomes more challenging is um, around when you're trying to do things that are a little bit more direct, I find. HR professionals, because they're so friendly, so nice, um, you know, kind of used to engaging so much with people that I find sometimes maybe not as direct. So if they're like, just generally not interested, just, you know, kind of say, this isn't for us or something that we want to pursue, (laughs) which I find that more when you're talking to like a CFO, or if you're being engaged directly with the CEO, it's very, very direct.
1: Well, right. And that's, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because you know, it's it's what's interesting, and I'm curious as to if you've experienced this when calling into human resources. I mean, do they need to get buy-in from that CFO or that CEO? Yeah. So I find
0: when the strategy is much more sustainable, or when they're bringing in um, uh, us to support them with something that's been kind of agreed on upon across the board, then the CEO and CFO, COO are all bought in when it's something Mm -hmm. that's more, you know, they're just needing help with implementation and they're not bought in. I find that much harder of a, of an, uh, engagement. Um, so one, one of the main things that we do is even if we're brought in on a smaller engagement, I mean, again, like no initiative is successful unless you have leadership or executive buy-in. That's right. Right. So you have to go out and you have to, you know, figure out the stakeholders, figure out all of the decision makers um, that are going to be involved in this in this process and get them bought into the strategy.
1: Right. Yeah, that's great. You know, because I have always said in my business that human resources has no power. Right. Um, They have influence, though, and often they don't know how to influence yeah so that's why that's kind of what's behind me asking these questions that where you know you 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 know they believe it's something important, but if they don't have influence, they're not going to be able to get it done. I agree, and I think it's because you know
0: traditionally h r was always seen as this like must have like this very tactical thing that you have to have every organization yep. understands yep. the value from a tactical perspective of mm-hmm. HR. But um, what we historically saw was HR wasn't really brought to the table around as many strategic decisions. So if an organization was figuring out how they expand into different markets, HR was maybe only brought to the table on recruitment
1: strategies. which Which they have no business being in, by the way. HR is no business having anything to do with recruiting strategies. Yeah, right? <laughs> just... it, 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 yeah, exactly. Right. Like... A- ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Thirty years of it, Thirty years of experience as a prof- you know almost thirty years as a professional headhunter. Yeah, and and people who run HR having no experience in talent acquisition at all they'll take, they'll take credit for it, but they don't actually have experience doing it. And in that exactly. And that's why so many
0: companies have an external recruitment arm or they have to bring in HR business partners to support them because it is, it's such a, and also HR is such a huge field. And I think a lot of, you know, if you're not in HR, you don't really realize that. Like you have, you know, everything that falls under everything from recruitment, onboarding, retention, recognition, compensation, professional development, offboarding, right. like it's a huge domain. And then you have like yeah. one HR person at some of these organizations, like they're usually right. some of the smallest departments. So then that's also poses a huge challenge. Um, and then I think HR just traditionally never had, um, like access to good data. So even when they were brought to the table, it wasn't again, evidence-based, um, they weren't able to contribute to ROI discussions and now we're slightly seeing this change. bit,
1: Yeah. That's good to see. Mm -hmm. How do you spend your time when you're not working?
0: I am an avid soccer player. I play soccer all the Ah. time. Yeah, that's probably my favorite Uh thing to do to to relieve Uh stress. Um, What about yourself?
1: That's great. Um, So if somebody listening, you know, to to your point of, uh, you know, we're looking to double here in the next year. If somebody listening to this, when this goes live, says, gosh, I love what I'm hearing. Uh, I'd be interested in talking to her about a job. (laughs) Oh (laughs) yeah, they do. (laughs) I, I fit what they're looking for. They're doing exactly what I should be doing. (laughs) That
0: would be great. I would say, you know, please reach out. Um, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. Miranda Mackay, or you can email me directly. I'll even share my email, Miranda at mckayconsultants.com. And yeah, I'm always open for, you know, a talk or coffee chat. I, again, same as I feel with building um, relationships with clients. I believe that with employees, all of the employees I've hired have had some kind of network where I've been able to bring them in through that. I just find it creates a more valuable um, Mm -hmm. kind of, engagement. So yeah, I would love to to hear. Mm -hmm.
1: And is there anything that we haven't covered today that uh, you want to talk about before we finish? No, I think we covered everything. I think this was just such an amazing conversation and really appreciate you having me here. Well, I appreciate it. So with that said, Miranda McKay, founder and CEO of McKay Consultants, thanks for being with me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions.